Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Are you being influenced? If you watched a blockbuster film in the last decade, then there's a chance it's been influenced by the Chinese Communist Party. Here's the reality. The CCP may be running the largest influence campaign in history. In Hollywood Takeover, brought to you by the Epic Times, investigative reporter Tiffany Meyer reveals how the CCP exerts control over some major studios. Don't miss the most important documentary about Hollywood yet. For a limited time, watch the first 10 minutes for free at hollywoodtakeover.com slash jesse. Jesse Kelly here. If you're in a situation where you feel threatened, instinct may drive you to reach for lethal means immediately. But we all want to avoid the irreversible consequences of deadly force. Enter the Berna Less Lethal Pistol Launcher equipped with tear gas and kinetic ammo to incapacitate an attacker for up to 40 minutes. It's legal in all 50 states, requires no background checks, and can be shipped right to your door. Visit Berna.com slash Jesse now for an exclusive 10% discount. Pure Talk, my sponsor and my wireless company, is now providing international roaming to over 50 countries. As you plan your summer travel, make sure your wireless company covers you at home and abroad. Unlimited talk, text, and plenty of 5G data for just 20 bucks a month. That's less than half the price of Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile. Go to puretalk.com slash jesse to make the switch today and save an additional 50% off your first month. That's puretalk.com slash jesse. You don't have to dip forever. You know that, Ryan. You don't have to smoke forever. And the reason I say it like that is I have been that guy. I've been that guy. I dipped for so long. And what would happen is I would decide I'm going to quit. That's bad for me. I'm going to quit. I'm a man. I don't need any help. I'm just going to quit cold turkey. And I would fail time and time and time again. I tried things like the patch. That didn't work. Gum, sunflower seeds. I, I tried it all. It's just a matter of finding the right thing to help you quit. That's Jake's Mint Chew. Go, put in your dip. Just make sure it's Jake's Mint Chew. It's tobacco-free. It's nicotine-free. It's even sugar-free. And I highly recommend, just a personal choice, I highly recommend their CBD pouches because it really helps take that extra edge off. Get a jakesmintchew.com. That's jakesmintchew.com. Make sure you use the promo code JESSE at checkout. When you do that, you get 10% off. This is the Jesse Kelly Show. You and your family, 
you have chosen to move, in some cases been asked to move, into the center of ISIS territory during the height of their power. When they were murdering, raping, torturing, crucifying, I mean, just the worst stuff we've ever seen. Some of the worst stuff we've ever seen. And you have chosen to move there, or in some cases been asked to move in the middle of that territory because it's more free and you want to be there. And you've moved there, though, under the promise that you will be protected by the United States military. You don't live on the base, but there are soldiers generally around you somewhere, and you can you can kind of see the base. It's pretty close by. You got to save a big military base there with you. And yes, you know it's a dangerous world. You understand that, but you have the greatest military in the world surrounding you. It's fine, right? It's not Ideal for everything, but sure sure beats city life for you. You were looking to get out and stretch your legs, be free. In the middle of ISIS territory. And you wake up one morning, open up your front door, you walk out, and you look around. And you don't you don't see any soldiers. There aren't any military soldiers. And you go back in the house and you say, honey, did you see, have you seen any soldiers today? She said, oh, I've been up for a couple hours. They're, they're all gone. It's like a ghost town out there. And you can't, now you're a little nervous, but you're okay. Well, maybe they're just, maybe it's a, a changing of the guard or so. Who knows? Let's, you know what? Let's just run down to the base, run down to the base real quick. We'll see what's going on. You hop in your car, cruise on down to the base, and the gates are wide open and you don't see anyone. And you drive onto the base and it's empty. And then it hits you. We are all alone in ISIS territory. 1763, this was, well, we'll get to that. It was the reason you live how you live today was that year. You see, what happened in 1763 was pretty much the end of what's called the Seven Years' War. We like to imagine World War I and World War II as being, obviously, the First and Second World Wars. Depending how you define that term, they really weren't. There was the Seven Years' War, mainly, well, obviously fought between Great Britain and France. This was the colonial age where Britain had colonies everywhere and France had colonies everywhere. And the war was fought on five different continents. So when I say it was a world war, I mean it was a world war. And obviously, they both had many, many, many colonies here in the United States of America. You know Britain had 13, right? Plus some down in the Caribbean and whatnot. France had 
most of what you'd view as central and eastern Canada. And if you drew like a big line down the center of America, Ohio, Illinois, Arkansas, Missouri, Louisiana, Mississippi, that was all French. And after the Seven Years' War, Britain emerged victorious. We'll do something else on the Seven Years' War. There's so much there. It's, it's a fascinating conflict. But this is not about the Seven Years' War. This is about the end of it when the French lost. And you're Britain. And all of a sudden, you find your empire to be huge. <laughs> Try to imagine you're fighting a colonial war in five different continents against the other major world power, and they lose, and they just kind of give it all to you. Well, that's a good problem to have. However, you just fought a war for seven years. Now you're buried in debt because wars are expensive. So now you're buried in debt, and your empire doubled in size. creates a whole new host of problems. And part of, a big part of their gain when it comes to land mass was North America. Like I just said, I just told you all the land the French had, and now that land belongs to Britain. And what France and Britain had been doing during this time in that part of the country, you know, Great Lakes, Ohio, remember we're talking Illinois, Missouri, all that stuff. They had been working with the Indians there. Yes, so many people, the, the, the colonists had moved out there and they'd settled down and, and set up shop there. And there, the, Brit, the Brits had several forts there. The French had several forts there, which they then abandoned at the end of the war and they became British forts. And everything was still okay because the British and the French had always known, well, look, we can kind of buy off Indian loyalty or peace, and that's what the policy was. We like to imagine every Indian tribe was this noble, noble savage meditating in the teepee with a, with a bow and arrow in his lap. There were a million different tribes that operated a million different ways. During this time, the tribes, especially in that region, not out, uh, not out west because they hadn't really encountered it yet, but the tribes in that region were heavily dependent on goods, trading, gifts, gifts like gunpowder, muskets, blankets, knives, clothing. They weren't all out there still wearing deer skins. They were banking on the things the British and the French gave them in order to buy their loyalty and their peace. Now, remember when I told you the British were broke? They were broke, buried in debt. They now had this humongous area they just won in North America, so the British made a choice. You can call it a good choice. You can call it a bad choice. I think when we get to the end of our little saga, you'll say it was a bad choice, but Britain looked around and said, well, I mean, they're the ones that gained all the new territory. So they're going to have to pay some more of this debt. We're going to raise their taxes. And we're going to have to cut spending. And you know how we're going to cut spending? Well, for one, we're going to pull many of our troops back from this frontier area. I'm sure it'll be fine. And two... 
all those goods we'd been giving the Indian tribes that they've come to rely on? Those days are over. The French are defeated. We don't have to buy Indian loyalty anymore. We're Great Britain. They're just going to have to do what they're told. And so they cut off the money train, jacked up taxes. And how do you think that went? Imagine you're a confederation of Indian tribes. You wake up one day and find out all the things you've come to rely on have been cut off. You're now going to be treated like a British subject instead of a partner. How do you react? You've always been a little bitter about the fact these white people just moved in right next door anyway and built a cabin. Well, which brings us to where we go from here. Hang on. Jesse Kelly. There were several Indian leaders who chose to take up the cause, but the main one you'll know, his name was Pontiac. Yes, that Pontiac. He was named after the car. I'll quit, Chris. The car was obviously named after him. He was one of the leaders of these gigantic tribal confederations, and they, well, they decided that we've had about enough of the British. We've had about enough of the settlers. Time to take all this back. And they decided to embark on a pretty horrific terror war. That was the means they had at their disposal. They tried to attack a gigantic fort, Fort Detroit. They never did take it. Other tribes in the east tried to attack Fort Pitt. Yes, that's where the name Pittsburgh came from. They couldn't take it, but there were a bunch of other smaller forts the Indians started taking over. Started torturing people in horrific ways. Contrary to popular belief from all the movies and stuff you've seen, many, 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 many Indian tribes did not torture people. They just didn't. It wasn't something they did. Like the Sioux, everybody knows about the Sioux. You know, Battle of Little Bighorn, they defeated Custer. The Sioux didn't torture people. They would scalp you after you were dead. They didn't torture people. However, unfortunately for the settlers in this area and the British troops that they fought, the Eastern Woodlands tribes very, very, very much did torture people. They viewed it as a almost religious thing. They would torture each other. They would torture captives. They would tie you up on a stake in the center of town and carve off pieces of your flesh and make you eat it. They would keep you alive for days doing this. 
It's actually kind of funny. I mean, it's funny because you're not the one tied to the stake having pieces of your flesh carved off. It's kind of funny. They were big on being stoic about it. Many cases, it would last much, much, much longer if you did what I would do if someone was carving off my flesh and scream like a little girl. If you took it like a man, sometimes they would not only let you live, they would adopt you as part of the tribe. Kind of cool, but either way, back to the story. And the settlers there are horrified. Remember how I opened? Now imagine what ISIS would start to do. And these tribes were trying to terrify them. They would take main roads, and there weren't a ton of roads, but they would take main roads and they would capture a settler, men, women, children, mutilate them horribly, chop off their heads, put tomahawks into them, and hang them up on the main intersections of the roads to make sure everybody was horrified. They actually got a school teacher and 10 of her school children killed them and scalped them all. That was one of the major, major incidents that really created the anger that I'm going to get to in just a second. Finally, this war, if you want to call it that, wraps up. And it wraps up by King George. Perhaps you've heard of him. Yes, that King George of American Revolution fame. Issuing the Proclamation of 1763. And during a time when the settlers were scared and extremely angry that they had been abandoned in ISIS territory, the Proclamation of 1763 came out and said, Hey, if you're living west of the Appalachian Mountains, that's your problem anyway. You're breaking the law. Better move back east. For all the stories you heard in school about taxation without representation and things like that causing the start of the Revolutionary War, while that is somewhat true, this this event and that proclamation is widely regarded as being the direct cause of the American Revolution. Why? Because... When you are living under a government of any kind, and that government not only abandons you, they declare you to be a lawbreaker, that government is not long for this world. I am not trying to be too extreme this morning, but we have... Brand new 6.6 million unemployment claims. We had 3.22 weeks ago. We had 6.6 million last week, which actually got adjusted up to 6.9. Some say 7.2. Long story short, we are 17 million. That's just the claims alone in the last three weeks. And keep this in mind. When unemployment claims come out, there is a one-week lag. That 6.6 million is a week old. Oh, did I mention we have so many unemployment claims that the unemployment systems of the individual states almost universally have collapsed 
They're not functioning right. The, the phones are overloaded. They're actually hanging up on people. They're asking people to send it in by paper in Florida because there are so many. The phone system and computer system can't handle them. Georgia, New York, California, slaughtered. And the anger is building. Because it's not, it's not only the joblessness. It would be one thing if it's just that. That'll create enough anger on its own, the joblessness. It will. But it's not only that. Government has decided you're a lawbreaker on top of it. We just had a man placed in handcuffs in front of his wife and daughter for playing softball in a public park with his family. Not a mass organized event. Not out there, 20, 30 people. Picks up a bat in a ball, goes to spend some time outside with his wife and his daughter, and he is placed in handcuffs for it. That is one story of a hundred I could outline for you today. The United States government, state governments, local governments, these worthless politicians, drunk on power. Some scared, sure, but most of them are just drunk on power. Make no mistake about it. Have almost universally decided that you must go broke. No, not them. Not a single government employee has missed a paycheck. Not them. They have pointed their finger at you. And by decree, not even passing laws, by decree, they have said, you will shut yourself in your home and you will lose your job. That small business you built, you will close it. If you don't close it, if you don't close it, we'll place you under arrest and shut off your water and power. You will go broke and you will go broke and you will go broke. And if I catch you outside of your house playing softball with your daughter, you're under arrest. How long do you think people will withstand that? How long do you think the American people will put up with that? Any people would put up with that. There's this bubble thinking. That everything exists on paper. And, well, all my D.C. friends said this. And uh, we might have to go another four to eight weeks. If you think you have another eight weeks of doing this to the American people, brother, I ain't responsible for what comes next. Unemployment claims. This is from Politico. Read 16 million in three. It's actually 17 in three weeks as coronavirus ravages economy. Let me be clear about something. 
I'm not just trying to prove my point. It's way, way higher than that. That's just the claims. Remember, people cannot get through. People didn't qualify quite yet. Self-employed didn't qualify. There are a bu- that number is low and really low. I mean, I'm not saying it's 17 million, but it should be 18 people. We're already over 20 million unemployed easily. Easily. The claims for week ending April 4th flooded in as confirmed coronavirus cases approaches 300,000 and as nearly every state ordered its citizens to stay home. Economic forecasts are becoming routine that predict unemployment will exceed its historic 25% peak during the Great Depression and the number of jobs lost in a mere three, week, three weeks now exceeds the $15 million that it took 18 months for the Great Recession to bulldoze in 2007 to 2009. Let me explain something about the difference between the Great Depression and the Great Recession of 2007-2009 and what we're facing now. Those were obviously... Serious situations. They were. This is way worse. And it's way worse for a different reason. Let's just, let's just focus on the Great Recession for a moment. Do you remember what the Great Recession was when that hit? What happened? A financial bubble burst. We're not going to be labor, all that stuff now. Well, you have to understand the redlining and everything. I mean, whatever. A financial bubble burst. That's what you need to know. That's what matters. But people were still working. People were still working. Yes, some people lost their jobs. But immediately, the economy, because an economy is not just an economy, an economy is 330 million people pursuing their own self-interests doing different things, adjusting to certain things. The Great Recession happened, but it wasn't nearly as bad as this because the economy moved around. It was uncomfortable. It took us a while to dig out of it, but this shop closed. Well, that created an opportunity for this shop. And, well, I mean, this store, yeah, they had to close permanently, but guess what? Gus has been waiting to get into that store. He's been saving up for a couple years, and he actually got approved for a loan. So he moved right. You see what I mean? People were liquid. People were adjusting. People made the adjustments necessary. It hurt, no question. Believe me, I took a beating. (laughs) It hurt bad. But we were able to adjust. The reason this one is so much worse, and the reason that this one is already getting us to unemployment numbers that took years to get to, we're already past year two of the Great Depression for unemployment numbers. You realize that? In three weeks? The reason it's so bad so fast is because we have done something that no nation in the history of mankind has ever even considered an option. We stopped our own economy on purpose. This was not a bubble bursting. 
This was not a war breaking out like in World War II where we had to retrofit factories and, well, now you have to make tanks instead and, and we're going to adjust here and uh, we're going to have to limit the amount of sugar you can have because we have to send the economy moving around still. People still allowed to move around and adjust and, and, and do their thing. We've done something different now. Now you're not allowed to move around. Now each and every one of us has a pair of concrete shoes on. And if you put the entire population in concrete shoes, you are screwed. And one thing that I'm still stunned about, and this is what gets me so bad, one thing I'm still stunned about is they're still talking about the end of April as if that's a good thing. <laughs> you know, I think we need to get this economy back up again. I think we're going to do this by the end of April. No promises, but I think we're going to do this by the end. Of- Are you people out of your freaking minds? That's three more weeks. That's three more weeks. I'm just a, look, I'm a dumb Marine. I have less than three years of credits at a community college. I got a 0.0 grade point average my first year at university out of high school. Dropped out, joined the Marine Corps. So you certainly don't have to take my word for it, anybody. But I will tell you this. I have called this from the very beginning. I'm not a Johnny-come-lightly to this. I called it the second we shut something down. I said that. That's national suicide. You can't. You you want to what? You want to sh- you want to shut down a twenty trillion dollar cut? No, you have to understand. The doctor said we're going to have five million dead. I don't give a crap what the doctor said. I don't care at all. That means nothing to me. The doctor is not in charge of the nation. A doctor should never be in charge of the nation. Just for the same reason that I don't go to the doctor's office when I'm having car trouble. A doctor is good for specific things. A doctor can tell you how to defeat a virus. An infectious disease doctor like Fauci and Burks, I'm sure they're fine at defeating a virus. But America is not a virus. America is many things. Yes, Parts of the country right now are struggling with the virus. Yes, we need to attack it. Take it very seriously. You do not tie a rope around your neck and jump off the bed because you have a virus. And that's what we've done. And that's why it's so bad. And I just cannot properly put this into words. We do not have to the end of April. We do not have until the end of April, until we're about to start experiencing some real, real pain. Real pain. All right. All right, Chris, I got to get off this. I got to get off this. Mainly because my mouth hurts. There has been an advancement in society that I don't think is an advancement. I'm not one of these anti-progress people, Chris. I'm really genuinely not. I'm not one of these anti-progress people. I like advances in technology. 
I like the fact that we have air conditioning now. I don't know how people lived without it, even though I've had to live without it for a lot of my life. I don't know how people lived without it. I like central heat. I like having a smartphone that's capable of doing everything. I do. But can we just acknowledge that not all advancements are really advancements? And I thought about this. You don't know what I mean? I thought about this this morning. Are we really better off with the television? In all honesty, are we better off never reading books? Are we better off with air conditioning, which I love? Are we? You'll you'll find people out there that'll tell you it's deadly. They think it has changed the human body and the way it reacts to the environment. And I'll tell you something else that we've screwed up on. Coffee cups. Hang on. Is he smarter than everyone? Who knows? Does he think so? Yeah. The Jesse Kelly Show. They have these amazing, and they are amazing. I'll say this. They're amazing when it's really hot outside. These Yeti cups. Chris, you know what I'm talking about? The Yeti cups? For the uninitiated, they're sealed. I mean, what do you, Chris, what's the word? They keep things hot and they keep things cold. It's not like a thermos. It's a, what do you call it, Chris? They're called tumblers. That's not what you call it. Nobody calls it a freaking tumbler, Chris. That's the little gymnast people. Oh, they call them tumblers. Well, it's not a freaking tumbler. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. It's a super insulated cup. And it's not just Yeti. Yeti's one of the name brands. They have a million different name brands for them now. Everybody copied the technology. And what it is, I mean, everybody knows an old school coffee thermos. But it's a cup, and they have them, of course, for every, all different shapes and sizes now. They have whole coolers, gigantic ones. They have small coolers. They have bags. They have tiny cups. They have big cups. They have these supremely insulated things. And I live in Houston where it gets oppressively hot in the summertime. So when you put something icy in one, it is actually nice to be able to set a nice cold drink out in something Leave it in the 95-degree heat for an hour and a half and come back and not a single cube is melted, like, at all. That is a nice convenience. However, the trapping in of the heat is too much. And here's where I'm, here's where I'm going, Chris. I can see the look of confusion on your face. I like a cup of coffee in the morning. I like a couple cups of coffee in the morning. I'm a coffee drinker. I drink my coffee black, as John Wayne intended. I like my coffee hot. I do not like my coffee 
melt the roof of your mouth hot? And if it is melt the roof of your mouth hot, which most coffee is as you pour it out of the spout, whether it be, you know, the company coffee maker or you pick it up from McDee's or Starbucks if you're a suburban white woman or whatever, it comes out super hot. Part of the process of enjoying a cup of coffee is letting it sit there for a couple minutes because you know it's super hot. And then you have to take your first sip, and you know what I'm talking about. You have to take your first sip, and it's got to be really, really delicate because you're just feeling it out. And then your sips, as they slowly go along, become lighter and lighter and lighter, and then you're like, oh, okay, never mind. It's at a good temperature now. It's at that right heat. You know, I don't want it. Don't don't shake your head, Chris, and act like hotter is always better. There's a limit, right? The problem is, and this happened to me this morning, and I'm still in physical agony over here. I get up. I pour a cup of coffee. I have one of these fancy Yeti cup things. Stole it from somebody. No big deal. I didn't steal it. That's not, a, that's not true. I'm, I, I hate thieves. I don't steal. He, bar, he let me borrow it, and I haven't returned it. That doesn't count as stealing, right? Does it? It doesn't count as stealing. I haven't not had an opportunity to give it back to him, and I'm not necessarily I'm not necessarily going to put forth a lot of effort to bring it back to him. It's not stealing. How long have I had it? Uh, four or five months. What? He's not asked for it back, man. He's not asked for it back. All right, let me clarify something before I talk about my coffee thing. I do not steal. Now, this is not some upright moral position of mine because I am a horrible human being. I, I have never told you otherwise. I will never tell you otherwise. I'm just a soulless monster. However, and I don't know why this is, I despise thievery of any kind. I hate it. I hate it. I would... and. There are so many things you could never trust me with, but you could leave me with $10 million in a suitcase and say, I'll be back in 10 years. And if you came back in 10 years, not a dime would be touched. I do not believe in thievery at all. So that's, let me clarify that. I'm not a thief. He let me borrow it. He hasn't asked for it back. I haven't volunteered to return it. I wash it every time, Chris. Clearly he's not missing it. Five months is not that long. I did him a favor. Plus, you'll see what I did him a favor when I get to my studio. So I poured myself a cup of joe this morning on the way to the studio to entertain the masses. Pour it into the Yeti cup. Because I'm a regular human being, I don't take a drink right right away because I know it's going to be too hot. Hop in my truck, plop the coffee cup in there, start cruising to work. Turn on some jams. I'm about 25 minutes from the house. I'm a little ways away. And I decide, obviously it's time to take my first sip. Clearly it's cooled off by now. No. Freaking scalding. Took a wee little sip. And now I have that feeling where you have the little little skin things hanging down off. Oh, it's disgusting, Chris. 
the roof of my mouth looks like Freddy Krueger right now. It's disgusting. Hang on. Jesse Kelly. Major societal shifts throughout the history of the world. If you read on them, I mean, we talk about them all the time, you know. Talk about another one tomorrow. Talk about one today. How do they start? I mean, we all, we like to look back on the American Revolution, and it's it's Paul Revere, right? The British are coming. It's loud. It's the whole country's up in arms, and they're all it's, we're all going to war. That's not how they start. That's not how any of them have started. That's where we start. How many of you just found out this morning the American Revolution actually began in 1763? You didn't because it was a tiny little frontier war with some atrocities. You like to focus on the big things. It's human nature. We focus on the big things. Major societal shifts do not start, have never started with major events. That's just where you start. That's where I start. Is this convenient, right? No, like so many things, they start with a whisper. I'll explain it in a second. Jesse Kelly Show. This is the Jesse Kelly Show. Hooverville is, Chris? Of course you don't. We'll talk about that in a little while. You know, major things begin with a whisper. And I saw these two headlines and I thought to myself, boy, that's, that's about to become a trend if things don't change real quick. The two headlines are, no rent was paid in April by nearly a third of American renters. And the second headline is, this is not Nazi Germany or Soviet Russia where you are asked for your papers, says a sheriff in Maine. First of all, on the apartment renters. 
a third didn't pay rent in April. Whether they couldn't or not is another story. Many probably couldn't. Many probably decided, well, they had to make a strategic decision. Haven't you had to make those decisions? I'll tell you. It's not a time I want to go back to, but I have. Well, I've got to... I've got two grand in bills here. I've got $800 in my account. Let's decide what's getting paid and what ain't getting paid. I understand. Look, look, I understand. If you make your living as a cable news pundit, as a blogger, you're a writer for a major publication, that that is probably hard for you to understand. Mainly because, and this is not, look, I'm being mean, but I really shouldn't be. The, the truth of the matter is this. If you make your living as a writer for a big publication, as a journalist, if you make your living that way, you most likely, and we know this, I'm not, you know, I'm not speaking out of turn here. If you make your living in that way, you most likely grew up upper middle class. You didn't grow up in poverty. You just didn't, which is fine. I wish nobody did. Good for you. Not everybody has to have a hard upbringing. I wish nobody did. You most likely, we know this because we track, you know, the histories of these professions. You went to at least a decent university. Outside of that university, once you graduated graduated with your degree in journalism, yes, most likely you had a pretty crappy journalism job coming right out of it. But you were still in Washington, D.C. or New York City. That's just the truth of the matter. That's where most of them go. Every Think about this for a moment. Think about all the... Conservative and liberal publications you know about. All of them. The ones on the right, the ones on the Where are they all written from? New York City or D.C.? I mean, 99% of them. So that's where you begin with your crappy job. You slowly work your way up. And now you find yourself as a writer with a major quota for a major publication. And some of these guys make money you would be shocked at. (laughs) I'm thinking about just flat out saying what I know about, I mean, some of them, I just won't name any names, but let's just put it this way. Many of these guys live, work, and worship in D.C. or New York. You have a quota. You have to put out 3,000 word articles a week, and you have to. You don't just get to wake up every morning and think, well, I don't really feel like it today. You have to have a strong opinion on something, and they track your internet clicks, and they're going to they're gonna think about, you know, what's going to get me the most clicks for something. And you make yourself 200 grand a year, 300 grand a year. I know of several that make five or 600 grand a year not trying to start a class warfare thing i don't do that i'm trying to keep you in the loop on the disconnect and frankly a lot of these guys are my friends i've been trying to get through to them and keep them in the loop on the disconnect that person has no earthly idea 
And they couldn't. It's not even their fault. I'm not blaming them. Good for you. You know what? I hope my sons grow up and have a job writing for some publication somewhere and making 400 grand a year. That's a dang nice life. I hope they find a nice little woman, treats them right, and is hot. I hope they raise, you know, a bunch of little kids. Drive a decent car, have have food in the pantry, go to a good church. I, I want the same thing for my kids you want. I hope they find that gig. So, again, I'm not judging. What I'm saying, though, if that is your life experience, and the vast majority of the people you see on cable news, the vast majority of publications you read, that is their experience. You don't know what it's like to sit down with $800 to your name and $2,000 in bills. How could you? You've never lived it. You've never had to live it. And so that person who's still getting his monthly paycheck, his biweekly paycheck, he lives in D.C. All his buddies live in D.C. Yeah, there's social distancing, but, I mean, he's, he's not bad for him, right? I mean, I don't have to go down to the office and fight traffic. Crank out my thousand-word piece by 9 a.m. in my pajamas. I'm, I think I'll have myself cocktail at lunch today. Again, I'm not ripping on it. Fine, good for you. Good. For, I want everyone to have a good life. But that person can't possibly understand what people are going through right now in this country. You just cannot. There's a ge- there's a geographical gap there. You cannot. Even all my friends in New York City, and New York City is pretty much my favorite place in the world. Everybody knows it. The guys inside of Manhattan talk to me differently than my friends who have families, you know, that do the commute thing, 45 minutes, an hour. My friends on Long Island, and I have many of them, and I love Long Island. My friends on Long Island, they speak differently about things than the people in downtown Manhattan. Where you are, what you're surrounded with, what your life experience is and has been matters a lot. And that's why so much of the coverage you've seen, I mean, gosh, 99% of the coverage you've seen, with the exception of me and a few other national voices, has been every day. We need, what's, the, what's the coronavirus death update? Did this person die of coronavirus? I bet this person was around someone with coronavirus. What's the, can we get a death toll? We need a, we need a death toll. How's Italy doing on the death toll? We need more death tolls. Coronavirus deaths here and coronavirus deaths there and everything's coronavirus and we're all going to die. And ah. Where the reg- rest of the people are, yeah, they're, they're worried about coronavirus. There's no question. But uh, I also need to eat food. My uh, credit card bill is 17 days past due. My small business that I've built for 16 years, it's a week away from bankruptcy if I don't open. But if you're within that bubble, you only know that life. You can't have a perspective on something else. It's not possible because you can't have perspective on things you've never experienced. 
Ever pawn something off to pay a bill or eat a meal? I have. Missed out? Catch up. JesseKellyShow.com Back to my no rent paid argument. My point is that gets worse from here. You know, if you if a third of American renters didn't pay rent for April, that doesn't get better in May. It just it just doesn't. Money's running out. Clearly, money was already out. Now money's running out, and I need to clarify this because a lot of people get. They get too simplistic on their answer for this. So you need to hear me. This, well, they shouldn't be charging rent. They should just, well, they should forgive this loan. Those are two of the simplest sounding terrible arguments you ever make. Ever in your life. They shouldn't be charging rent. Who's they? You know who owns these buildings, right? A person, a businessman, a landlord, or a group of some kind. They don't own these buildings for funsies. It's not just, well, it was laying around. I could just throw them up and we'll see what happens. Let's see if anyone moves in. They rent these businesses out as part of a business model. It is a business model. They have... Expenses. Landlords have expenses in a lot of them. In many, many cases, the buildings landlords rent out are not paid off. Not by a long shot. So that landlord owes the bank. Let's say that landlord owes 10 grand a month. That landlord needs to bring in. At least 10 grand a month. Obviously, he needs to bring in more because there's extra insurance and a bunch of other costs, taxes, and everything associated with that. Well, if that landlord owes 10 grand a month, and now that landlord brings in zero that month, well, now we've just kicked that can down the road, haven't we? Uh oh. Um, which gets us to the bank. The bank gave out a loan to a landlord. The bank gave out that loan. Now, the bank didn't have that money just sitting in a money bags vault somewhere. They gave out that loan as part of a business model. Banks are not charities, just like the landlord. They didn't open up the bank just for funsies. You know, I've got some money. I think I want to loan it out to people. But we'll see if they pay it it back or not. It's no big deal. No. A bank gives out a loan as part of the business model. They loan out $10,000 with the expectation you are going to pay them back over time $12,000. And this is all very simplified, obviously. Well, now we have a real problem, don't we? Because that bank 
you're not getting paid. And he's not getting paid because the landlord didn't pay. And the landlord didn't pay because the renters didn't pay. And the renters didn't pay because the renters didn't get paid. And the renters didn't get paid because they didn't go to work. And the renters didn't go to work because the government ordered them not to go to work. There is a freight train coming. Remember I said everything starts with a whisper? There is a freight train coming. Nobody wants to acknowledge when it comes to this. Nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to bring it up because it does. It's uncomfortable. Look, it is. It's uncomfortable. And that freight train is this. What do you do when the banks start to close? What do you do? You've got two options. The banks are either going to close or the more likely scenario right now is the federal government will start in you know a figurative sense printing out $100 bills and shipping them to small banks in mass quantities. Well, uh, that sounds nice, right? Except that money has to be paid back. It's borrowed from somewhere. You're either going to massively devalue the dollar or that's more borrowed money. You see, there's this thing when it comes to economies and economics. Debt doesn't disappear ever. It can't disappear. Well, they should just forgive the debt. No, it doesn't get forgiven. It may get forgiven for you. Someone's paying it. Someone, somewhere, somehow is paying that debt. You see what I mean about how it starts with a whisper? One-third of renters in America didn't pay their rent in April. Bringing me back to this. This story flew way under the headlines. But pay attention to this. Maine's Franklin County Sheriff Scott Nichols has a strong message for the governor of Maine, Janet Mills, who issued a stay-at-home orders with threats of police punishment if not followed. Sheriff Nichols issued a statement on the Franklin County Facebook page saying in no uncertain terms he will not follow the unconstitutional order. Quote, We will not be setting up a police state, period. The sheriff's office will not purposefully go out and stop vehicles because they are on the road or stop and ask why people are out and about. To do so puts our officers at risk. This is not Nazi Germany or Soviet Russia where you are asked for your papers. If you think he's the last sheriff to come up with that concept, you've got another thing coming. Remember, it starts with a whisper. The American people know people, but especially the American people, because rebellion is in our DNA, isn't it? It's how we were founded. It's why we were founded. I will not live under a king. I will not live under a tyrant. The founders knew this and set up the most freaking hands-off federal government the world had ever seen, which is amazing. Oh, no, no. It's not what the federal government's going to do for you. Here's the very specific things the federal government's allowed to do, and here it is by law. They're not allowed to do anything else. It was so radical. People had no idea if it was going to work. Even some of the founders were like, oh, that seems a little That might be a little too far, right? 
We're just going to let them do whatever they want? Yep. States can decide on their own. Not my problem. Wait, we can't. No, we can. We just did it. The American rebellious spirit is in our DNA. It's who we are. It's ingrained in us. And the truth of the matter is this. It starts with a whisper. People are going to start going out. They have to. People are going to start they're going to start going back to work if there's a job there to go to. They're going to start opening up their businesses. Sheriffs are going to start openly announcing, I will not enforce this. Remember, the sheriff is an elected official. Many people will say that's how they all should be when it comes to law enforcement. A sheriff is not, he's not, on, he's not under the mayor's command. A sheriff is directly responsible to his voters. And remember that bubble I just told you about? The truth is, if you were to pull the American public outside of the D.C. New York City pundit class, go ahead and pull the American public right now what they think should be done. And it's going the opposite way quickly. I know because I see it. I see it all around me because I'm blessed to not live in Washington, D.C. I see it all around me. The public is going to start demanding they be allowed to feed their families. And you know what? There ain't a daggone thing in the world wrong with that. It is your God-given right as an American citizen to feed your freaking family. And no little tyrant out there can tell you otherwise. The Jesse Kelly Show. It's time to talk energy because... This has already hit the energy sector, and the energy sector was being hit before we even had a virus. And somebody's got to make sense of all this nonsense, and so we know the man to do that. His name is Daniel Turner, Power of the Future. Daniel, what was happening? Before we get to all the fallout of everything else, what was happening with oil and energy before this virus even hit? Uh, before this began, Russia and and Saudi Arabia had started to hint at they were going to have a little bit of a price war with America. And we've seen this before. They did this in 2017. They did this in 2014. And what they do is they flood the market with a lot of oil to drive down prices and put their competition out of business, kind of the way your listeners will know one of the, the – uh, um, the knocks on a company like Walmart, kind of the thing what Walmart does when it moves into a new town and everyone says, oh, good Lord, the prices are so low. And Bob's Hammer Store goes out of business because Walmart's selling a hammer for a dollar. And they can afford to do that for a while 
until they drive out their competition. And then when Bob's Hammer Store closes after 80 years and Grandma and Grandpa's legacy is flushed down the business and Walmart's the only guy in shot in town, then they raise their prices back to the normal and everyone is screwed. And that's, quote, unquote, free market capitalism. But it's not exactly what I want society to look like. How do those, you say they've done it before and they're doing it now or we're doing it now. Mm-hmm. How do they end? What, what ends it? Do they decide to end it? Do we punish them to end it? That's, how, do we, how do they end? Well, foreign policy is, and this is where this is not an economic decision, so it's not a market failure. It's a foreign policy decision. Foreign policy has been called into play in the past. And in 17, President Trump called the, the, the crown prince of uh, the crown prince is kind of like Dr. Fauci. He's the most powerful man in the country. And he called the crown prince and said, we have to knock it off. But what really has saved us, and that's what's not happening this time, what saved us is the robust American economy. Because the more they just kept producing oil, the more we consumed it. And Americans saw oil down to $50 a barrel, and they said, this is great. Rather than fly to Vegas, maybe we'll put the kids in the car and we'll take a road trip to the, to the lake, right? Everyone was living a great life because things were becoming cheap. So the robust economy consumption made the, made the Russian and Saudi plot fail. But there's no consumption right now. Think of this, Jesse, 89% of the oil we use in America goes into transportation. That's cruise ships, jets, uh, people driving, um, that's, that's trains, truckers. Now, the truckers are still going. Thank God for them, right? They're, they're keeping the supply chains active. But where are these trans-Pacific cargo ships? They're not really happening right now. Where, where are the jets? You know, I used to be on a plane probably five times a week. I haven't been on a plane in a month, which I actually don't mind. Um, so when all of this consumption is down, we have this glut of oil, and that's what's crushing us right now. How does that get handled from an economic standpoint? I'm sorry if this is a dumb question, but I'm stupid. How do, what do you do with the glut of oil? Because as you've told us before, the, the oil has to keep pumping. If you, if you drill down and, you're, and, you, and you hit oil, it's still coming no matter what. So what happens? You just throw it in barrels on the ground? What happens to it? Yeah, yeah, you fill up as much as you can, and that's why President Trump is talking about the strategic oil reserves. Um, it was back in, I think it was 2013, President Obama sold most of the oil reserves, oh, but he didn't replenish them. And so we have the space for the government to buy it. You know, I don't like the, I, I'm not a Keynesian, I don't like the fact that government is buying oil, but the strategic reserves are necessary for military purposes, and it's smart to buy it. $23 a barrel. Normally we buy oil when it's $90 a barrel, yeah. right? So it's, it, that's a good thing to do. Um, but but, but there's, there's not much we can do economically. I said it three weeks ago on your show, Jesse, and I've continued to say it, and I've actually been proud to see other people talking about it. What we need to do is we need to ban the import of foreign oil, or we need to put tariffs on Russian and Saudi oil. That is not something the big oil companies want, um, but that is something... The small guys, guys in Texas, look, 17 million people have lost their jobs. A lot of that 17 million are oil and gas guys who are getting told, yeah, buddy, sorry, you know, what am I supposed to do? Help me understand something. You mentioned the big companies out there. I I guess I've always been under the impression that most of these little oil pumps and things like that in Texas and other places are owned by the big companies. It doesn't sound like that's the case. No, no. The vast majority of the oil we produce, close to 90 percent of it, 
is from independent producers, companies you've never even heard of. But in a great state like Texas, they may know someone like, I think my grandpa was in the oil business, right? There's a lot of small oil companies. Now, I say small. Small compared to ExxonMobil. They're still profitable. Right now, they're not profitable, but they are really successful companies, but they're not traded on on the stock exchange. Um, But the big guys, what they do is they refine oil, and they refine Saudi oil. They refine Russian oil. So your BPs, for example, refine most of Saudi Arabia's oil. The Saudis pump it out. They tank it over to the Gulf of Mexico. We refine it. BP refines it and then puts it back into the world market. BP doesn't want to see a ban on on Russian oil or Saudi oil imports because it's bad for BP. But what's bad for BP isn't necessarily what's bad for America. And that's the big difference between corporate interests and industry interests. And I am fighting for industry interests because that's millions of guys. You know a lot of them, hardworking, blue-collar guys who are just trying to feed their family, and they're the ones getting crushed. What does it mean... What does it mean to refine oil? What, what do they actually do to it? So the glop that comes out of the ground, and it depends upon the region, what comes out of the ground in Venezuela, what comes out of the ground in Canada, in, the, in Saudi Arabia, is very different from the stuff that we put either into propane, right? When you buy for your grill, um, it's either uh, gas that you use for your car, it's jet fuel, et cetera. And what that means is that process, that, that, that glop crude is the best example for it, is put put through a process where it is literally boiled, it is distilled, it is filtered. It's almost like making moonshine. And various products come out of that. And then the final, final, final products of it are, are, are things that petrochemicals that you use every time, you, you, millions of times a day. Rubbers, plastics, your cell phone, Tylenol, laundry detergent, aspirin. I mean, the, the, the amount of things that come from petrochemicals, because these are organic products, right? They come from the earth. They're not artificial. They're not. I mean, they're, they're, they're man-distilled but they are natural products, and we use them. So when people say, we're going to get rid of the big oil companies, we're going to get rid of fossil fuels, oh, yeah? And, and, <laughs> and what's your cell phone going to be made of, buddy? And your IV tube that's going into your arm right now because Dr. Fauci mandated you have to be on IV, what do you think that's made of? It's made from plastic, and that comes from oil. So the amount of stuff we need is we can't live without fossil fuels, and anyone who tells you that is as as defunct as Bernie Sanders' campaign. Daniel, what are you having for breakfast today? Uh, just sadness, Jesse. It's a tough day. You know, I mean, the businesses oh. like mine are just getting crushed. And uh, But it's great to hear your voice, and, and it's great to follow you on social. You're trying to keep us all upbeat and positive, and uh, you're a lifeblood for us, Jesse. So thank you, my friend. You be good, my friend. Daniel Turner, love that guy. Always educating us on energy. We are going to stop Talking about coronavirus for just a few. There's somebody who has reared his ugly head again, and I don't. Chris, you're going to have to explain something to me. These people in public life, what what makes it so addicting? What what makes it so addicting? Why? 
when you've had a great life. Why do you come back? I'll explain what I mean in just a second. You're listening to The Jesse Kelly Show. You're welcome. I bet you haven't heard that name in a while. Howard Dean. Chris, you don't even know who that is? You moron. He was that guy. He ran for president. You would know who he was. The guy who went the, ha, he did that great. (laughs) He had that great. You know what? Pull that Howard Dean audio of him doing the the shout heard round the world. And I mean, like, he's just a dude. He's just a dude. He's the former, he's a uh, former chairman of the DNC. I think he was a governor. Wasn't Dean a governor? I'm almost positive he was a governor. And now he does these brief appearances on MSNBC. And he's, he, I'm sure he has a little contributor contract. I don't know how much it is. Not my business. But he does these little bits. You know, they'll, well, let's go to former DNC chairman Howard Dean for his thoughts on things. And... He announced, <laughs> it's, this is his quote. You know, well, do you have it? I'll play it. This is, this is the Howard Dean everybody knows. New Mexico, we're going to California and Texas and New York, and we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan, and then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Yeah! <laughs> that will never stop. Being funny. <laughs> and you know, if he wasn't such a scumbag, I would actually sympathize because it's just clearly a guy caught up in the moment. <laughs> Quit, Chris. <laughs> I'm trying to focus. <laughs> it's clearly a guy caught up in the moment. And I can understand, I can understand how it happens. Look. I've given some speeches to some decent-sized crowds before. I mean, how many people were at CPAC this year when I had to get up there and speak? Is three, four, five thousand, maybe more, in that room? And look, it's not—it's not you two playing at the Rose Garden, but I will tell you, it is a feeling. It is a feeling of. <sighs> Elation is probably not the word I'm looking for, but when you stand up in front of thousands of people and they're cheering you on as you speak, it is intoxicating and it's addicting. And I guess I just answered my own question as to why these people don't ever go away because that's got to be it. But you can hear it in his voice when he's doing that. He just got so caught up in the moment. He just lost himself. And I'm sure he actually had another state he wanted to list. And he probably lost his train of thought. And instead, it just turned into, ah! <laughs> We're going to 
Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! <laughs> oh, gosh, that's so good. Well, either way, either way, long story short, he has announced, quote, I just told MSNBC I wasn't going on their shows as long as they were broadcasting Trump's press conference, Dean tweeted Tuesday. I won't make much difference if it's just me, but if 50 of you did it, it would make a difference. One, you're Howard Dean. Brother, my producer, Jewish producer Chris, he hears me talk about politics for three hours a day. He didn't know who you were until I just told him about two minutes ago. You don't have the luxury of standing up and saying, I'm not coming on. Brother, if you disappeared tomorrow to a cabin by the lake in Siberia, nobody would know. It would be five years before somebody did a wellness check. Hey, whatever happened to Howard Dean, the dude who made that idiotic video? (laughs) Quit, Chris. Quit interrupting me. (laughs) Well, what are you doing making threats to anybody, for one? And two, I understand Republicans can be guilty of this, too. I do. But Democrats have this thing where they can make themselves look so petty and small. They look terrible. We are in the middle of a pandemic. And look, we all see the poll numbers. The people, they like those press conferences. They like hearing from the president. They like hearing from Dr. Fauci. They like hearing from Dr. Burks. They like the press conferences, period. The Democrats are actually petitioning the major networks to stop airing them because it gives Donald Trump, the president of the United States, airtime. It's fine to oppose Trump if you're a Democrat. I get that. That's it, Politics is a contact sport. I get that. They're going to oppose Trump. That's fine. But when you oppose him in that way, it looks so small. And when you're trying to be the party that leads a nation again, you can be a lot of things. The last thing you want to be is small. Is he smarter than everyone? Who knows? Does he think so? Yeah. The Jesse Kelly Show. When is it right to throw your enemy a lifeline? You're at war. You have an enemy. Whether it be your neighbor whose dog barks or whether it be an actual other nation state and you're a nation state. And all of a sudden, through I mean, nothing you did, they are suffering. They are suffering badly. 
What should you do? What should you do? What is right? What is wrong? It brings up an interesting moral question, doesn't it? We are about to tackle it in this last hour. Because I'm sick and freaking tired of talking about coronavirus. I'd rather laugh at Howard Dean. And I'd rather discuss gigantic things like, when is it right to toss your enemy a lifeline? Is it ever right? Do you drop a nuclear bomb on him? Do you hand him a cup of water? Hang on. Jesse Kelly Show. This is the Jesse Kelly Show. Is victory wrong? I know you're thinking, well, no. Victory is what you want. This is America. Can it be wrong? What if I framed it differently? Is conquering wrong? Is it inherently wrong? When's the last time you had a conqueror? Let's say the last time we had a conqueror on the world stage was Hitler. He, that's easy to say Hitler was wrong. This guy was a freaking devil. Forget about Hitler. Before him, what was the what was the, the last great conqueror before him? Chris, we'll see if you can get this. That's right, Napoleon. Was he wrong? You can say a lot of bad things about him. You can point to all the death, all the destruction. Do you know how many freedom-loving reforms are still in place in Europe today because of Napoleon? How many millions and millions and millions of lives have been changed for the better because of Napoleon? Let's say, all right, let's say that was a bad example. Let's go to an extreme example. Somebody who was, I mean, a real monster by some. Brilliant, but a monster by some. Genghis Khan. Is he evil? Is what he did evil? And let's let's get down to the nitty-gritty of it. We'll talk about him several times on the show because he's one of my favorite historical figures. Genghis Khan would murder entire cities of people, real people, men, women, and children. I don't mean a city of 20,000. I'm talking half a million and stack the skulls on top of each other like a mountain. He would tell them, 
you can surrender and live under me or I will kill everybody. And he always meant it and he always won and he always killed everyone. He was so committed to killing everybody that once the city was conquered, he would assign 10 people, men, women, and children, to each one of his men to make sure it was done in an efficient manner. They would have to go kill them and then bring back an ear to prove to their commander that they killed the 10 they were assigned to kill. Estimates vary widely, but we're talking an estimated 40 million people dead because of Genghis Khan. Do you understand how many 40 million people is without bullets or bombs? So that's another, you would think, easy one, right? Well, obviously he's evil. He's up there with Hitler. He's a monster. Is he, though? The reforms he put in in huge parts of the world, again, many, or at least the principles of them, still in place today. Once his empire was established, crime almost disappeared. A robust mail system. Oh, did I mention religiously tolerant? To an extreme level. This is not some god king. If you were a Muslim, he didn't care. Build your mosque. That's fine. You're living under me, but build your mosque. You're a Buddhist? Totally fine. Build your temple. Christianity? Absolutely. Build your church. You're welcome to worship Jesus here. I won't stop you. He had places where mosques were across the street from Christian churches. Fine. Isn't religious tolerance one of the marks of the great leaders? Isn't religious persecution like Hitler? Isn't that one of the marks of the monsters? If I were to tell you that a leader took over some violent, barbaric parts of the world and built roads in a mail system and allowed all religions there to practice as they wanted, would you say that person is bad? Would you say what he accomplished is bad? It's difficult, doesn't it? I saw this headline, U.S. to block Iran's IMF bailout request. This is from Just the News. The United States will block Iran's request to the International Monetary Fund for $5 billion in emergency funding to help fight the coronavirus. The Trump administration maintains that Tehran has access to a considerable stockpile of billion-dollar accounts that it should use to fight the virus outbreak. U.S. officials predict that if aid requests was approved, Tehran would use additional funding to offset the damage being done to their economy by U.S. sanctions or to finance militant attacks in the Middle East. The pandemic is taking a particularly rough toll on Iran, adding further damage to its economy in the wake the sanctions resulting from the administration's maximum pressure campaign. The U.S. is the biggest contributor to the IMF, giving it a large say in approving requests for aid and bailouts. 
As a technical matter, IMF member nations can over, could overrule any U.S. desires with a majority vote, but that outcome is unlikely, et cetera, et cetera. Essentially, this is the deal. We have crippling sanctions on Iran. Again, the maximum pressure campaign. We have those sanctions on Iran for a very specific reason. Do not let your heart bleed for them. Iran is, without question, the world's largest state sponsor of terror. It's a way of life there. And it's not just, you know, in that region. Did you know Iran is heavily involved in Venezuela? Did you know Iran, we actually busted the guy? They sponsored an assassin, uh, assassination attempt that didn't get off here in the United States of America. I believe it was against a Saudi diplomat. Iran and its intelligence service has its tentacles everywhere. They are our enemy. They are a bad actor. We know this, and therefore we've launched an aggressive, essentially a siege. It's what would be a modern-day siege, our maximum pressure campaign. And what's the goal of a siege? Sieges are ugly. How often have you heard me talk about them? We'll talk about them several times. In fact, I just decided, Chris, I think I'll talk about another one tomorrow. Just thought of the one I'm going to talk about, too. It's sweet. I mean, as long as you're not the one in the city. But what's a siege, really? You're trying to take a city by starving all the people in it to death. Let's not make it out to be more glorious than it is. That's what you're doing during a siege. It's not in, uh, it's not an army barracks. They're not all troops in there signing up to fight. You're trying to starve everybody to death during a siege. And what are maximum pressure sanctions on an enemy nation? Well, let's be honest. Let's be real about what they are, about who it affects. The Ayatollah of Iran. All his scumbag buddies in his cabinet. Do you think they're missing any meals? We're not starving them. We're starving the people. In the hopes that the people rise up and break them. Now, what's the right thing to do if those same people start dying by the thousands because of a virus? Hang on. Missed out? Catch up. JesseKellyShow.com Now, what's the right thing to do with Iran or Iran? Chris, is it supposed to be Iran or Iran? We need someone with an education on this show, at least as like an advisor. 
No, someone with real education, Chris. I Now, granted, my community college was accredited. I don't want to brag or rub it in anyone's face, but fully accredited. But we need someone with an education to teach us how to pronounce words. Remember, I don't know how to say any words. Either way, what do we do now? What's the right thing to do? Now, we know, we do know, because they've done it before, that Iran would 100% use some of that money to fund terror. That's what they do. That's what they do, period. We know that. We also do know their people are dying. And again, not the Ayatollah, not his scumbag cabinet members. The normal, everyday, half of them pro-America, probably more than half, people of Iran are dying by the thousands because they don't have our facilities. Iran is not a third world country, I should, I should clarify. A lot of people view like the entire Middle East as being that way. That's not true. Iran, especially for over there, is fairly modern, but they're just not. They're nothing compared to us or or a modern European nation. They're just not. They don't have they don't have the ventilators. They don't have the hospital space. And let's be frank, similar to China, similar to other evil countries, that okay to call? They don't care about their people. They genuinely do not. It is a theocracy, and people were just expendable there. They, do, I mean, you heard the stories. I've been hesitant to report on them, but report on them as if I'm a journalist. I've been holding back my report, Chris. <laughs> I need to start putting more gel in my hair if I'm going to be a reporter. Either way, I've been holding back on it, but you've heard what China's doing in Wuhan. I mean, the reports are coming out. They are having people that they can't treat and they feel like they can't save. And they're chucking them in body bags while they're still alive and throwing them in the incinerator. Yeah. Chew on that with your breakfast. Iran's the same way. Iran doesn't care about their people. They're, they're, they're infamous for some of the worst human rights violations against their own citizens in the world. What is our responsibility? I don't want to be cruel. I don't want to be mean. But clear back to our Napoleon, Genghis Khan talk. In the short term, yes, it's ugly, it's deadly. It's terrible. Would not wish it on anybody. Certainly glad it's not my family or anyone I know. In the long term, the next generation, and the generation after that, and the generation after that of Iranians, are they not better off if this regime falls? For all the talk we have to hear today about the greater good, and nobody wants to hear about the greater good when they're the ones drowning in their own lung fluid in the hospital bed. Or a loved one is. I realize the easiest thing in the world is to talk about the greater good when things are just fine for you. Boy, you have to, hey, shut up and go back inside, peasant. You're an American. This is for the greater good. We're stopping the virus. 
as your paycheck still comes in and they're going broke, <laughs> it's, there's nothing easier. But aren't the next generations better off? It's like conquering Mexico, which I've long said we should do, Chris. <laughs> Quit. We can we can do hypotheticals. We're going to get in trouble for that again. But seriously, it's like conquering Mexico. What if we were to wake up tomorrow and decide, you know what? This imperialism thing doesn't sound all that bad. I like Mexico. And actually, I do. I love Mexico. I'm one of the biggest fans of Mexico. I love the food. I think they have great beer. They have actually a lot of natural resources. They border both oceans. I have long said, and people yell at me, that Mexico could be the next great superpower if they ever got their heads on straight. They have everything you need. Good family structure. Again, two oceans, natural resources, good climate, also a tourism destination. The chicks are hot. That's really the most important thing, isn't it, Chris? But still, if you're the Mexican people today, do you want the United States of America to wake up tomorrow and say, we're invading you and we're going to conquer you? And the Mexican army gets out there and they tries to they try to fight us off, and we all know how that would go. And civilians die, probably lots of them, because that's what happens during an invasion. That's just the nature of the beast, either directly or by disease or starvation. And it's horrible. It's horrific to think about. What are you doing? You can't invade Mexico. This is horrific. This is a human rights violation. Ah, you're Stalin. Well, that's what they would say now. But what if you're the next generation of Mexicans? Or two generations from now? Or three generations from now? And instead of living under a corrupt narco state, that can't even figure out basic water sanitation. Instead of that, you're living as part of the United States of America. Now does it become worth it? Something to ponder, is it not? I told you I was done talking about coronavirus for a little while today. We've just gone completely off the deep end now. Now we're invading Mexico, Chris. Does that become more appealing? I guess it all depends on your perspective, doesn't it? But I did make you think, didn't I? Yes, right now it would be horrific. It'd be a human rights violation. It would be, I mean, sheesh, for the people who live there, it'd be awful because war is awful. Conquering is awful. But what about their kids? What about their grandkids? What if Mexico... Instead of being Mexico, what if Mexico is the next Texas? You think you could ask two generations from now if they would like to be the next Texas and you could present to them all the things that means? What do you think they would say? What do you think they would say? So back to Iran. What do we do? What is the right moral thing to do? I say we let them choke. I know I know that's blunt. I know that's uncomfortable. But I say we let them choke. If we're in the middle of a war 
with Iran, which we are. And all of a sudden, a virus breaks out in Iran. So we've got Iran under siege, right, with our sanction protections. With our sanctions, I mean, our maximum pressure sanctions. And all of a sudden, a virus breaks out. Well, I hate to break this to you, but historically, that's half the goal of a siege. When they're starving, plagues break out because people do not have the immunity. They don't have the nourishment to fight them off. And historically, when you're laying siege to a city and disease breaks out, you don't pack up and go home and let them off. You sit back and think, well, this worked out just fine. Yeah, that's going to get us in trouble. The Jesse Kelly Show. Joining me now, one of my favorite guests out there. You are going to learn to love him if this is your first time ever hearing him. His name is Clay Martin. He's an author of The Last Son of the War God and The Sword of the Caliphate series. They're both fiction, but uh, you'll enjoy them. (laughs) They're both kind of fiction. He was a Marine scout sniper, Marine recon, and then he left because he's a dirty traitor and became a Green Beret. And I decided that today would be a good day where Clay would teach us how to use a tomahawk on somebody. Clay, how do we fight with swords and knives and tomahawks and stuff? Because I want one for home defense. I want a tomahawk. <laughs> Morning, brother. Well, uh, you know, my, my actual my take on this has always been that it's not hard. It's just you have instinctive ability to use these weapons. Uh, some people would call it a, a race memory. Basically, that means that, you know, We've kind of evolved a, a process where, like, small children will be afraid of, like, a tiger or a, uh, you know, a, a black widow spider. Kind of the same thing for hand tools. It's the same thing as, you know, throwing a punch. You might not be perfect at it, but for all these, like, edged weapons and, and, and melee weapons kind of things, you already have all the skills you need for it. Clay, why does it – what is the psychology behind it? Because I'm quite sure you know behind why that instills such a unique – fear in people we had a situation in iraq where we had our weapons trained on a bunch of people and they didn't budge and we fixed bayonets and they turned around and booked it the other direction it it is is a unique fear in somebody what is it why is it 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 absolutely is and uh, there's even a a famous i believe the general patent quote about you know the bayonet might kill one but it scares thousands Honestly, I think it's because we actually have something in our monkey brains to associate with, you know, violence and edged weapons. You know, be that, you know, Flint Spears, you know, 100,000 years ago. That's something that we have like an evolved process to to understand. With bullets and, and things like that, it might as well actually be magic. I mean, that's only been a, a viable thing that could hurt you for like 400 years. And that's a blink of an eye in terms of, you know, actually instilling kind of, of fear. Yeah, I think that may be one of the reasons that artillery and stuff actually terrifies people more than bullets as well. 
is it's just loud. It mimics, you know, thunder and natural, you know, scary things. Bullets, you know, if you've seen a lot of people shot, you probably learn to be afraid of that. But a lot of people haven't. What should you ever, if you're using an edged weapon for home defense, and again, let me clarify, we're only talking about defending yourself, your family. Should you ever throw one? It looks awesome in the movies when Steven Seagal does it. <laughs> it does look awesome. It is totally cool looking. I'm going to go with no unless like, mm-hmm. you're a axe-throwing champion on the side, in which case it's probably okay. Uh, yeah, I've actually spent a little bit of time learning how to throw knives for fun. Never for for any any tactical reason, and uh, I would say that it takes so long to actually get good at it that for most people, it's a completely irrelevant skill set. Uh, but that goes back to you know, is a, is a, is a sushi chef good at using a knife? Yes, absolutely. If you do that all the time and as a hobby, you're probably you know totally fine with it. For everybody else, I'm gonna go with no. All right, Clay. We have now. I'm not. This is not going to happen. People, don't freak out. But we have massive societal collapse. The the institution of government falls down as we know it, and we're all left with a backpack in our family of four, walking through the wilderness looking for food. But that involves you have to hunt deer and birds, and you also have to protect yourself from the violent gangs that inevitably pop up during this process. What is the one rifle, not pistol, what is the one rifle Clay Martin is carrying? I'm, a, I'm an AR-15 guy. I, I really am through and through. It's, uh, it's probably the most common one in, uh, in use today. You're going to have the most chance of finding ammo for it in most places. Why does that uh, matter, so that would Clay? Be... What do you mean best chance of finding ammo for it? I try to tell people this all the time. Oh, well, there you go. When you start having weirder calibers, it becomes a lot harder to find ammunition. Uh, and we're talking about you know, widespread use. The same way that the, you know, the most common hunting round in America still today is a thirty odd six. It was invented nearly 100 years ago. We have you know, dozens of calibers that surpassed it, and everybody has you know, cool guy 300 wind mags and other stuff. But thirty odd six is still the most popular hunting cartridge in America. When it comes down to a, a survival situation, having the most common bullet around matters a lot uh, as well as you, you're able to find it more often as well as you know we're talking about battlefield recovery if you still want to use your weapon instead of one that you picked up 556 is unfortunately the battle round of america and will be for the next 30 years you like it over a 762 do you like it over the heavier round or not i've heard guys debate this back and forth forever obviously 556 is lighter to carry does different things do you like it better and why I, I actually don't. I'm actually a 7.62 guy at heart, and uh, it's funny. This is actually a, d- a debate that I've had ongoing with some of my uh, my friends uh, in the sniper community in our little you know sniper group chat for a very long time. And you know, some guys with as much or more experience than me, and uh, and whose opinion I absolutely respect, they are 5.56 guys through and through. Uh, because again, you can carry more of it, and especially when we're talking about a 20-inch barrel where you get that really high velocity. Looking at a lethality inside of 400 yards that is just, I mean, absolutely staggering for how small the round is. Me personally, I'm a 762 by 51 guy because in my experience, it works better. Uh, the first time I shot somebody with 762 by 51, they fell over like the fist of God hit them, and I've kind of been, you know, enamored ever since. Like, I want that bolt. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, now for our basic people. What is yep. what are you talking about when you're talking about bullet velocity? Break that down in a non-gun freak way. Perfect. This is one of the things that's kind of a happy accident of the 556/223 round because they're essentially the same thing. Uh, 
that round was actually a varmint round uh, when it was, you know, instituted into the uh, the military arm. And because of that, I mean, it's actually illegal to hunt deer with in several states because the bullet is too small. Now, it happened to be a happy accident that the 5.56 round, above a certain velocity, which is about 2,400 feet per second, according to all the studies I've seen, it has an effect called spalling. So when it, even though it's a small bullet, when it hits something at that hypervelocity, the bullet actually kind of comes apart. Uh, it, uh, if it's something like the uh, 62 grain green tip, it actually breaks into three pieces. The jacket goes one direction, the lead core goes one direction, and the steel penetrator goes another direction, which makes an absolutely just catastrophic wound. Now, again, that was an accident. It was never designed to do that, but it only does it above that certain velocity. Unfortunately, with an M16, when you start chopping the barrel off, you start losing velocity. Uh, that gun was originally designed with a 20-inch barrel. Uh, you still see it on, like, the Marines M16A4s, and that's where the lethality is absolutely highest for that bullet. You start chopping that thing off, and you start losing that velocity, which is, is not actually a straight line either. Once you get down to about 16, you're still maintaining what we call spalling velocity out to about 250, 300 yards. When you start going below that, especially down to, like, 10s, it may be only across the room. And in that case, you may as well actually be shooting 22 long rifle because the bullet does not have enough speed to, to do its job. Clay Martin, go buy his books. You will love them. If you thought that was good, you will love his books. You're stuck in the house anyway. Go buy his stuff on Amazon. Trust me, you will enjoy it. My friend, I appreciate you. All right. Thanks a lot, brother. Talk to you soon. Be good. Chris, tell me that wasn't sweet. <laughs> uh, we have the best people. about it during this whole quarantine national lockdown process here's what my schedule is for the day roughly i wake up in the morning i pour a scalding hot cup of coffee that's going to melt the roof of my mouth on the way to work i get in my truck and i drive to work i do a radio show Go grab a bite to eat. Do some research. I'm just kidding. I don't research. <laughs> I go grab a bite to eat. Maybe take a nap. I do my TV show. You can find my TV show, before I forget, on Pluto TV channel 248, and it's expanding to other platforms. The channel is called The First. So if you enjoy the radio version of all this, I do a one-hour TV show Every Monday through Friday on the first 8 p.m. Eastern time. And it's all free. You don't, there's no subscription. You don't have to pay for it. Right on your smartphone, right on your TV, just download the Pluto TV app, 8 p.m. Eastern every night. And we have fun there, too. I do my TV show. And then I drive home. And here's her day. <laughs> Gets up. 
does a little workout or something or whatever the things she does to stay hot. Makes breakfast for the kids. Sometimes, sometimes we make them make their own. And then she has to homeschool the children now all day long. And I'm a huge fan of homeschooling. Homeschooling, uh, gosh, I almost think everybody should do it, although we do not. I don't send my kids to public schools, but I don't homeschool them either. But she has to homeschool. And now she has a job. She didn't have a job forever because she's lazy. I'm just kidding. She didn't have a job forever because, because we wanted her to be home to raise the kids. Well, now they're 9 and 11. And we've raised them to be so self, self-sufficient that I mean, she just doesn't have to be there all the time. And when I say self-sufficient, I mean my kids will walk in the door. They're hungry. They go grab a can of beefaroni from the pantry, pour it in a, a pot, turn on the stove, Make up some beefaroni, go peel a, a, a you know piece of fruit for themselves, sit down, get their homework done, like it's self-sufficient. I haven't seen them in weeks. But so she decided to go back to work, and now she has a job. And by the grace of God right now, I know a lot of people are not in this situation. She's not been fired. I mean, I would have fired her weeks ago. She's not been fired. So on top of homeschooling the kids all day, she has to go work all day. And it's not one of these jobs where you just have to have the computer on. She has actual responsibilities, unlike me, where I don't have to do anything. Um, she has actual responsibilities. And this is the best part. Right about the time that the kids are done doing their schoolwork all day, and right about the time that she's wrapping up her work all day, I am walking in the door from doing radio and TV, and it's party time. So I have not only been allowed to leave the house, because I have to, it's for my job, I arrive home right about the time all responsibilities are done. And so I kick in the door. She, You can tell, I mean, she's burnt out, like I'm sure so many of you are right now, between the kids and the jobs and everything else. I kick in the door, and I'm like, Dad's home! And they come, and they're hugging, and we're playing, and we're wrestling, and I'm beating them up, and we're laughing. And she's like, can you guys please just leave the house? And I'm like, what's wrong? I know what your problem is. I just got home. I've been breaking bricks in the hot sun all day. Anyway, how are you? What's for dinner? <laughs> and, it's, it's, and you know... She's a good sport about it, but you can tell. And she loves having sons. That's all we have. We just have, we have the two boys. But you can tell she has her moments where she's like, I am. I live with cavemen. I live with complete and utter barbarians. Speaking of my Mexico invasion strategy, Chris, I would highly recommend anybody download the show if you'd like to hear about Pontiac's war, if you want to hear about the reason we should invade Mexico, me burning my mouth with coffee, if you want to hear Clay Martin talk about killing somebody as a Green Beret, all that is available on the iHeartRadio app. It's available on jessekellyshow.com. It's available on Google. It's available on Spotify. You can download it on Apple. If you have an iPhone, it's out there everywhere. Also, if you have any questions for me, or let's be honest, if you have any compliments for me, you can write me 
at jesse at jessekellyshow.com. I came up with that email address myself, jesse at jessekellyshow.com. Again, I get so many emails now because I'm so wildly popular that I cannot respond to all of them. If you send it, though, I will read it. I will read it. Jesse at jessekellyshow.com. So I got to thinking, Chris. There's nothing we have time for today. Maybe there's a freedom we don't need anymore in the United States of America. I'll explain partially. Hang on. Feeling a little stocky? Follow, like, and subscribe on social at Jesse Kelly DC. Remember, jesse at jessekellyshow.com. You can email me. Podcasts are available on jessekellyshow.com and iHeart and Google and Spotify and Apple and all those things. You can find me on Twitter at jessekellydc. I'm amazing at it. And there's something we need to tackle, Chris. Something we are not going to have time to fully dig into today. I think what I'm going to do right now... It's what's called a next day tease. I don't think it's actually called that. I've never heard that before, but I just made up that term because I don't know the normal radio terms. And I've decided that there's a freedom we no longer need in this country. Or maybe we should consider, maybe we should have a debate on whether or not we need it. Now, people who know me know I am a freedom freak. I believe in a tiny, 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 limited federal government that is the best form of government. I don't support big government Republicans. I don't support big government Democrats. I am a small government person. I am a freedom person. You live your life the way you want to live your life. I live my life the way I want to live mine. Not just on a government level. On a personal level, I'm that way. I hate gossip. Like, there's a reason you've never heard me do, like, little gossipy things. Oh, did you hear about this congressman getting a DUI? Oh, did you hear about these people having an affair? I just don't do, I don't care about it. I mind my own friggin' business. I wish you'd mind yours. I just don't care. It's not my business. Don't care. However, when it comes to the First Amendment, when it comes to the freedom of the press. Is it? Is it time to make some edits to that? I'll explain tomorrow. That's all. Jesse Kelly Show. Your holster is way more important than you think it is. It's just way more important than you think it is. What? Look, and I get that. The holster's not the 
sexy part of carrying firearms, right? You want to talk about your weapon and your ammunition. You want to talk about your safety training. You want to talk about how you did at the range. Oh, look at my groups. I was doing these failure drills today. And all that stuff's really important. I mean, really, really important. I'm not discounting that. But I've known so many people who do all those things. They take all the necessary steps, and then they carry with a holster they bought from a big box hunting store that was made a thousand at a time. Please, don't put your life in one of those holsters. You need to trust Northwest Retention Systems because it's all custom-made gear. It's the only thing I carry around. NWRetention.com. That's nwretention.com. Use the promo code JESSE. Get you 10% off. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball. From growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball. From Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 